in this corner with Brian Campbell coming back at you. And, you know, normally, guys, we start off this show with all fun and games, but we'd be remiss this week if we didn't hit it right off the top, giving our best well wishes and prayers out to the nature boy himself, Ric Flair, who's resting comfortably as we record this Wednesday in Atlanta Hospital, but still has an uphill battle following surgery. Guys, in an already crazy week of wrestling, this is really tough news for, for anyone of any age associated with wrestling. We could not be behind the nature boy anymore in this fight. One of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest, our thoughts and prayers with Rick and the rest of his family. Get well soon, Nate. We want to see you back in the squared circle sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm not done with uh, him walking down that aisle styling and profiling, so I need the dirtiest player in the game, still in the game, so get better soon. Corner with the Brian Campbell. This is the professional wrestling edition. Now, me, I am handsome Nick Costos, and I'll be real with you. I've had a difficult week, and look, if you follow me on Twitter, at the Costos, on Instagram, at the Costos, where I urge you to like my pictures to help me sleep better at night, you know I was in Las Vegas. So you say, hey, handsome Nick, why was the week bad for you then? It's because I think I've got a pinched nerve in my back. I haven't been able to lift any weights because it sends crippling pain down into my hands and feet. That really sucks. I need a bacchiotomy. I think I might have to get a bacchiotomy at this point. Seeing an orthopedist on Thursday, God willing, I'm not dying. And as a result, I'm feeling soft. And you know how insecure I am. The fact that I haven't lifted weights. You know what that's doing for me? It's making me into even more of a psychopath and neurotic freak than I already am. Because as you know, I am a petty, pathetic, insecure little man. And as always, I am joined by my tag team partners. First up. He is the Russian judge of the Hero or Zero <laughs> segment. He's extremely crooked. He only gives you a point if you agree with him. It's not fair. It's not right. But he's still our guy. He is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Hey, now. And as always, I am joined by the man whose name is on the marquee. Come on. He is the icon. Let's go. He's the main event. My man. He is the showstopper. One time. He's the whole effing show. Stay hype. He is the bod that runs the pod. Bring it. He is the mast that guides the cast. Let's go. You know his damn name. He is the Brian Campbell. Oh, yeah. BC, tell him what's on the podcast. You're going to want to do yourselves a favor, let me tell you, and get some of this. I'm going to tell you the truth. This may be the busiest seven to, t- seven to ten day stretch of pro wrestling all year, and this show is going to reflect that. This week we offer you no gimmicks, but we promise to bring it just the same as we recap last weekend's NJPW G1 Climax Tournament and preview this weekend's Midsummer Classic from the Barclays Center as WWE presents SummerSlam and NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 3. We also have one heck of a monster guest for you and WWE executive and 14-time world champ Triple H who sat down with me to talk about everything from Ronda Rousey's future in pro wrestling to whether NJPW and others have forced WWE to evolve and adjust their style. We've got so much to get through in so little time so let me remind you to hit us up on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, review, but for now, 
let me hand it right back to the most passionate man in North America, a man who is coming home this weekend to NYC. So all the ladies be prepared for some right swipage coming your way, although he did mention he is soft. There's one part of our bodies that's soft, and it ain't soft all the time if you catch my feeling. <laughs> it's handsome. Nick Costos. And as you know, handsome Nick Costos does not rest in peace, ladies. He can stay up all night. And that's a brilliant intro from the Cousin Yuri, the Victor Conti, the King Balco, the first of our performance-enhancing audio, the man whose name is on the marquee, the Brian Campbell. As BC said, stay tuned. Coming up later in this podcast, Brian's exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with Triple H. That's coming up in a little bit. But as always, we begin with... The main event. This is the main event. So I'm watching SmackDown on Tuesday night, and we're watching the uh, the Jinder Mahal John Cena match, which I think was pretty hilariously guys called the biggest match in SmackDown history. <laughs> or you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock they used to wrestle on SmackDown too. But let's just forget about that for now. Oh, so you know, Cena Nakamura from from what last week? Yeah. So, Cena yeah. Nakamura was Seven a bigger match. Yes, literally last week or a couple weeks ago was a bigger match. So. Cena hits him with the AA off the top rope and goes for the pin, and Corbin interrupts, right? And I start to get the gist right then and there what's going to happen, right? Corbin goes outside the ring, runs back in with the briefcase. He cashes it in. Cena distracts him. Jinder rolls him up. Five-second match. It's over. Baron Corbin loses Brian Campbell. The money in the bank briefcase. Holy hell, that was a pretty cool moment. That was a pretty awesome moment. And, okay, big picture Awesome moment. You want to know why? Because what WWE did this week with Raw and SmackDown combined was they actually gave you a go-home episode which fulfilled its name in its mission, which is to send you into that pay-per-view fired up. And we talked about how bad the build had been for where SummerSlam should be, right? The Midsummer Classic, the summer version of WrestleMania. Really, the, the to some people, it's the hardcore Mark Super Bowl show, you know, separate from the pomp and circumstance of WrestleMania. This week, they finally got it right, or maybe it had just been so long since they got it right that it feels so special. They got it right. I'm with you, dude. I really think that they did, and we crushed them last week. This week was a lot better, both shows. We had a title change on Raw between some big reveals. Just everything felt fresh, new. It felt quick-moving, so that's all good. This Corbin thing was a great idea. I'm sure the three of us are going to have a problem with the execution of it, and that is legit, and I did too, but the idea to see Cena land in AA from the top rope, which is a next-level move, and when he hit that on Jinder Mahal, you are basically guaranteed that John Cena is going to win this match, but no, what happens next? The briefcase gets thrown in the ring, and here's why that was brilliantly set up. You didn't have Corbin's music hit. You didn't see him running down the aisle. The timing of that was perfect, because of course Cena's going to when Jinder and this non-title match is not going to kick out of that move. But here comes Corbin, the opportunistic heel to slide in there. Perfect use because none of us could have saw this coming. We would have guessed it would have been an average mail-in show. Instead, it gave you that feel like it's in play anytime. Now, the goal, though, the goal to insert Corbin here is to create juice for this Cena-Corbin matchup where there wasn't any juice coming in. Let's be really honest. We didn't like it. There wasn't a great build. There wasn't a reason why these two should have been feuding. This was the proper setup to that. What you don't like in the end is the execution. My biggest problem is referee Mike Chioda taking all that time to try to stand up Jinder Mahal. 
I thought the rules of the briefcase were that you can cash it in any time, even when the champion is knocked out cold. That's the point, right? It's like a 24-7 thing. Whenever there's a situation, a guy's in a ring, you can cash that in. Taking that time to stand Jinder up, to me, made it feel too much of a suspension of disbelief. Now, maybe you thought Corbin turning around and walking down the aisle at first fulfilled that same thing negatively. I say no. It's pro wrestling. They were showing you with Corbin's facial expressions that he hadn't thought about it at first, and he stopped himself and said, no, I'm going to cash this in right now. But to see the referee take that much time, you killed that moment. What I would have liked differently, you could go a couple different ways, but very subtle change. Cena comes on the apron to interrupt Corbin. I want Cena to interrupt Corbin getting the chance to end the match there. Attack him. Actually get be successful in attacking him because letting Jinder Mahal roll up Corbin from behind, it looked like a babyface move. It looked like an opportunistic babyface move where he had been beaten down and he woke up at the right time and he scored a victory. All you've done is crapped on Jinder as a chicken crap heel. Why give him that victory right there? I'd much rather have seen Cena come in, intercept Corbin from doing that, and now we have real reason for real hot fire entering SummerSlam. I disagree with almost everything that you just said. Like, yep. literally almost all of it. Um, other than the fact that I liked the moment. That I agree with you on. I thought the execution was just fine. My problem with the execution... How about... Ba go back and watch this. If you're listening, go back and watch. Or maybe you noticed it. Baron Corbin, the entire time as he's waiting for Mike Chioda to get Jinder up to his feet, which I think that we see that generally with Money in the Bank where they try and get the guy at least to be able to stand before and he's usually wobbly or whatnot because he's just had a match or gotten beaten down, etc. You can see Corbin keeps looking back as if to be like, where is Cena in relation to where I'm standing? He totally telegraphed that that's, that that's what was going to happen. Go back and watch it. There's like five or six instances where Corbin looks back looking to see where John Cena is. So I thought Corbin kind of blew it there. And I'll say this about the SummerSlam match coming up. If Corbin jobs to Cena, if Cena goes over, Baron Corbin might as well retire because his career is over. Corbin needs to go over Cena. I don't care if it's interference. I don't care if it's dirty. It doesn't make a difference. Baron Corbin absolutely must win at SummerSlam if WWE gives a damn about him long term. Now, as for the decision itself, kind of cool, right? Because I think many of us expected it to happen after the Nakamura gender match at SummerSlam. So now you know that that's off the table because it already happened here. Now, where do they go with it? If this turns Corbin into a real vicious heel, if he gets some momentum after beating Cena, then I think it could be worth it. This is not like Sando cashing in and losing clean. It's not the same thing, Bri. You're, you're, you're fast-forwarding too far ahead of where this can go. In the moment, I think they had a great idea. They just kind of botched it. I, but, but, how, but how? How do you think they – they didn't – how did they botch it? I, look, the, the idea of Jinder just reawakening and rolling him up off of a one-second distraction from Cena wasn't enough for me. This is wrestling. And taking advantage. You want to have Cena come back there and attack him and prevent it. So then Corbin is upset at Cena. What is he upset at now? He's upset that the referee took too long. No, he's upset, he's upset, upset Cena, that Cena distracted him. That's the storyline. He's pissed at Cena. I'm saying that that part was a little soft and weak. You could have done the, the way I laid it out where Cena just gets retribution and, and prevents him from cashing it in. Then you want to see that at SummerSlam. You could have gone one level higher, though, Nick, and had Cena help and allow Corbin to win. Why? So that Cena's match at SummerSlam is for the WWE. But that's not Cena's character. Like that, that would never happen. And I also think, by the way, the Jinder roll-up, I think was maybe neutral. I don't know if it was heel or face. And I actually think that leans more on the heel spectrum than anything else.
Yeah, but you allowed a guy to who just taken an AA off the top rope to sort of heroically come back alive and make a smart decision. That's babyface written all over. It was, it was like a solid 90 the, seconds after the AA that it happened. I don't mind that the cash-in failed, but I think they kind of made Corbin look bad in the cash-in failing where it could have been done a little bit differently where you look at it and say, okay, Cena just got came back to life at the right time and intercepted him and prevented him. Instead, like Cena stood on the apron and got knocked out cold. It just wasn't enough. It's a little bit nitpick. Overall, I'm not going to be a complainer, though. Smart move. You like that they can cash that sucker in at any time. You like that a cash-in doesn't automatically equal a victory. You like that sort of breaking up the chain of guys cashing in successfully. He now becomes, by the way, Corbin, he's the third person to win money in the bank to not cash in. Cena was the first. Uh, DQ finish against CM Punk at Raw 1000. Sandow, the second, who lost clean to Cena. And now Baron Corbin here, Silver King. And you kind of Silver King, Silverstein, that was like a combination. Of that both. works. Go ahead. You kind of laid it out. And Cena happened to be involved in all three of those matches in some way. By the way, this was also the fastest WWE title match in history. BC, the thing about your reworking of this angle. Trivia question. What had been the previous? I don't know. Bob Backlund against Diesel. Oh. Eight seconds. Oh, okay. There you go. So MSG house show. Six seconds, two seconds shorter, and almost probably impossible to beat. I mean, unless you get a quick roll up right after a bell. Um, BC or the, a finger poke of doom part two. Or, or you know, yeah, that. but the finger poke of doom had like 50 seconds of Hogan <laughs> and Nash circling each other before the actual <laughs> finger poke, of, of course. The, the thing about the, the retooling of the angle BC that you laid out that doesn't work and the reason why it didn't happen that way is it keeps the briefcase on Corbin. I think it's very important to note here that WWE made a concerted decision that he is not ready to be a WWE champion, and him having this briefcase is not in their well, long-term storyline plans. Maybe. It doesn't, keep the, bill. It doesn't keep the bill. I'm talking about they activated the match. Corbin goes to to be opportunistic against Jinder, and then Cena just comes in and either causes a DQ or lays him out so that Jinder can just sort of fall on him and get the pinfall. You still remove the the briefcase, and what you do is you cause a reason for Corbin to viciously defeat Cena. But he has the reason already. Like, the reason's there. The reason's soft. That's all I'm saying. And, and it was soft. They well, could have hammered it home, and it was a little bit soft. Well, here's the other thing. You have to remember, it was also Indian Independence Day, and in India... Jinder Mahal is a face, so he got the face roll-up win. It helped Mahal. He got a win clean, although you I know, th- I know. I in think a WWE title what match. What helped Jinder was that he kicked out of the regular AA. That's what helped him. That is that, because that, that gives him some credibility. That as well. It helped the Cena-Corbin build, as you said, Nick. It helped Jinder Mahal as a whole. The only person it didn't help was Shinsuke Nakamura because there's no build for this WWE title match at SummerSlam. It, it helped every other party in the match except the big n- double main event at SummerSlam. Okay, um, you're wrong because the nakamura Jinder segment that opened the show I thought was pretty good. We'll get into that later as we preview SummerSlam. I will, I will say this, though, to, to back up what Silver King said. I will give him a point there. He's right that they've been purposely— Who are you? Now, 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 now you're the crooked Russian oh. judge here? I mean, I'm surrounded by commies. This is unreal. <laughs> Silverstein's point was key in the fact that they have protected the idea that Jinder could be a babyface, and he clearly, if you listen to the commentary, is being presented— as a babyface in India, and if you look at the opening segment where Shinsuke crashed that ceremony, that's a heel move from Shinsuke to crash a ceremony that was, you know, so grandeur and positive, you know, pushing forth gender and pushing forth this culture. So it does sort of support that. I, I, I disagree with that also. I thought it was a face move what Nakamura did. Like, the heel comes out and is like, trashing the audience, and then the face comes out, and, and, and they cheer for him. How, but, how is that a heel move? But that's the one thing that WWE is doing for everything with Jinder Mahal 
the announcers turn it. So all the Indian announcers, now I don't know Punjabi, obviously, but if you read, you know, people that follow the Indian TV for WWE. Why are we talking about what the Indian announcers are saying? Like, who gives a damn about this? Like, no no one that's listening to this cares what the Indian announcers say. All we're pointing out is that that finish looked like a face move a little bit for gender and can be portrayed that way. And everything they're doing with gender has a double angle. So for American audiences, he's a heel. And for Indian audiences, he's a face. And this is another example. Me supporting Silver King's theory does come back around and support my theory that Jinder rolling him up yeah, of is course. a face move. Okay, in- you're both wrong. You're both wrong. <laughs> it was a heel move, and you're both crooked. And this is now I find out that's why Campbell wins all the freaking hero or zeros because you two are in cahoots with each other. <laughs> like, like you know, Khrushchev and Nikolai Volkov here in the 80s under the Iron Curtain and the Hammer and Damn Sickle. Let's move on, it, Brian. Zukov, yeah, move Let's on. Let's find out to the second part of our – Double main event, and really, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. Me and Briar texting earlier in the week, and we were going to lead the show with G1, and then the Corbin thing happened, and we got to do that first because it was so newsy and, and noteworthy. Um, the G1 finals and, you know, the final matches of the blocks were extraordinary. I mean, what a freaking weekend. I woke up in Vegas to watch these matches. The first thing I did when I woke up, boot up njpwworld.com and watch these outstanding matches. Bry, we're going to break it all down here. The A block final, the B block final, the G1 final, Naito winning. We're going to give our awards, but it's going to start off with our breakdown of that sensational A block final, Brian Campbell, between Naito and Tanahashi. I love that you said Las Vegas and freaking weekend. And the that same- was pretty good. I noticed it when I said it. Thank you. Absolutely. I just want to say three consecutive days of wrestling. I don't think you're going to find three better consecutive days of wrestling than what we got here. They don't exist. You're right. They don't exist. Saturday, Sunday. Look, the A block of the three matches we're going to talk about was the worst of the three, but such a solid, strong match. You got Ace Tanahashi, the babyface, the John Cena with one arm, really having a an underrated run in this tournament. I mean, you know, he gets a big push. Go Ace, does the air guitar, which gets me to pop every single time. But Naito going over in this one was the right move, Nick. This match on its own, Naito Tanahashi deserves some respect. Take some time and watch it separate if you haven't for all the talk you're going to hear from this point forward in the show, which is very Okada Omega centric. Let's give Naito and Tanahashi credit. That was a strong A block final. Uh, No doubt about it. Silver King clap a few times. I'm up next. Great match. Let's talk Omega Omega Okada now because, man, (laughs) the B block final. So so this is legit, right? Friday night, I go out in Vegas. I get hammered. Like, I got, I had a great night on Friday night. I wake up, and it feels like I've been smashed in the head with a steel chair. But despite that, I loaded up my computer to watch Omega Okada Part 3. 25 minutes. Obviously, the 30-minute time limit. First match goes 55 minutes. Second match goes the full 60, the Broadway, the draw. This was 25. It had to be because of the time limit. I thought it was just as good. As one and two, I'll tell you why coming up here in moments, but I need to know if you guys agree with me that three was just as good as the first two. It wasn't just as good, and I do not come with any hater bones or motives in my body. You have to understand what we're saying here. Nick, full disclosure, you texted me right after it going, you know, what'd you think of that? And I go, you know, wasn't as good as one and two. But look at what we're comparing it to, right? Maybe the best match in pro wrestling history, either one or two, depending on which one you like better. So it's almost like, I mean, if you like boxing, the Pacquiao-Marquez 
trilogy, you know, the four fights they put together were legendary. No one talks about the third fight because it wasn't as good. It's still a fight of the year contender and a great fight. This had that feeling. It was a step down for me. So what does that really mean? It basically means it's a four and three quarter star match at worst. Well, may I interject Th to ask a question here? Was it a step down for you in terms because it wasn't longer or was it a step down for you in terms of the quality of the match itself? They're setting themselves up to fail following a 60-minute Broadway that had that much action and storytelling. And that's a fair point. There's nothing you can do unless, to be honest, do like a five-minute Brock Lesnar-Goldberg-WrestleMania slobber knocker, right? That's the only thing you can do to be different. So structurally, you're kind of set up to fail to begin with. You have to love how this one started with Omega psychology-wise, knowing he had only the 30 minutes. He couldn't beat the guy in 60 minutes the second time. How was he going to do it in 30? Well, he was going to do it by attacking. So three-quarters of this match I thought was nearly perfect. The fact that Omega is always attacking Okada. Okada selling that Nick injury so hard that you're really as a fan wondering if this is something that's going to ruin the rest of his career it might. you give them that credit it's almost to the point at the midpoint I'm like the ref might stop this I know that was part of the part of the American commentary there but the ref might stop this because Okada is taking damage that's the right story to tell in that part because the rest of the match Kenny looked like he was on the verge of pinning him constantly and Okada would come out of nowhere with a miraculous move to stem the tide it would be a drop kick that would catch Kenny coming off the top rope or something miraculous. Now you're saying, well, Campbell, you just put it over. Why is it not as good? Well, one, it, it's not going to live up to the first two just to, just to begin with. And two, it's the semifinal of this tournament. I don't think it can be better than those two. And I don't love, love, love five and six star the way the booking finished it off. I thought it hit a point at the three-quarter match of the mark of the match where it was so on fire. You knew where the storyline was kind of going, but it was getting there. And then I saw too much back and forth trading of moves in the last five minutes, back and forth of near falls that didn't really fit the storyline for me. Now, this is nitpicking, picking nits at such a high level. I'm basically saying that this match is a borderline five-star match arguably the best match of the tournament. It's just not as good as one and two. And what are my problems with the finish? Look, I know Kenny had to win here for a couple of reasons, right? It's not legitimate that Kenny is this big a star if three times he can't be Okada. That's one of it. Number two, Kenny is the star they're pushing, right? They're trying to make inroads in America. It's so smart to get him into the finals of this tournament. The only way to not have him win is really going the method I said, which was use a DQ, use interference they're, from part. Not in the semifinals of the, the final of the B block of the G1. There's no chance they would do that. This isn't America. Use the interference of the Bullet Club at some point. Look, again, it's nipping, but the question was, is it as good as the one and two? And that was the reason to me why it wasn't. I know why Okada, had, why Omega had to win here. I just wanted to see him cash it d down the line and get that big victory. Why? Because even though Kenny's a heel there, and that has to be said, we have to respect the fact that he's presented as a heel. He's so damn good that if you're an American and you are watching this, you are watching Kenny as a babyface. So watching him as a babyface, I want to see him climb the ladder and almost get there and then finally get over the top. Tell me why I'm wrong, Nick. Um, uh, you're wrong. I mean, where, where should I start with why you're wrong? Um, yeah, the match was freaking Incredible! And look, you said it was what four, four point seven five, four and three quarter stars. So like, we're not that far off with it. The thing that really was breathtaking to me about this match was it was high octane from start to finish, and they told an unbelievable story, right? Whereas the other ones, because if you're gonna do fifty five and you're gonna do sixty, you can't go high octane from start to finish. This they had to do high octane from start to finish, and the match was brutal and it was stiff. 
and Omega was on, like, if you scored that, and I think the commentators actually said this, if you were to score the 25 minutes like it was a round of, an, of a fight, it would have been 10-8 Omega. Like, Okada got his spots in and got his, and got his stuff in. But this, let's, let's be clear about this. Kenny was, the, was, the, was dominant and was the aggressor for the majority of this match. It was brutally physical. There were tremendous spots. The right guy went over. I had no problem. Kenny had to win this match. I mean, for a million different reasons. And like, you sort of laid them out. Um, the one that's most obvious here is that there was a draw and there was a loss, so Kenny had to win the third one. They will meet somewhere down the line, and I think Omega will win that match if and when it ever happens because Omega's going to be the face of their global expansion. But, man, as far as, like the, like, the ending to this trilogy for the year 2017, for me, you're probably right in the sense that because it was only 25 minutes, it can't necessarily reach those those high levels, like like in being the pantheon, the true pantheon of greatness, like a six-star match. But, man, for what it was, standing alone, Five stars, and I think it belongs in the conversation with one and two. Yeah, absolutely a five-star match. The faster pace for it really attracted me, because what I told you guys is the first one is my favorite. It always will be, and because it was the fir- first time you see it, and the first time is the best time. The second time, I told you all those down spots and you know to create that full 60-minute stretch. It wasn't as fast-paced. It wasn't as exciting. I thought the storytelling in this match was best of the three just because it was so compact. And what you guys said about Omega at the very beginning, knowing he had to rush the pace, you know, right at the beginning and, and, and carrying that through the entire time and Okada having to keep up with him. I think there's two things that also to mention. One, when I go back in years and decide to watch these matches again, this is the match I'm going to come back to watch because I'm not going to want to sit through a 50, 55 minutes uh, slugfest. I'm not going to want to watch a 60 minute draw. I'm going to want to well, see. Well, that's your bad. Those matches are great. I'm just saying, I'm going to want to see a high octane Kenny Omega you know, thing to go over. And here's the other thing this match had no potential way to live up to one and two, not just because one and two were so great, five and a half, six star matches, whatever you want to call them. These guys just wrestled for 16 consecutive days. They're exhausted. You can be a top athlete. But and you be- couldn't tell, right? At- like, if you had been dropped into this like, and, and not been told they've wrestled all these matches previously, you would have had no idea. You wouldn't know, but you have to, like, give them that break. Like, it co- they couldn't have done it. You know, maybe they could have, but they had a shorter period of time. Omega had to go over. He had to be dominant, like you guys said. For me, it worked that way. I just think that... You know, we, we, we I spent the time being slightly negative just to say why it wasn't as good. But, man, this trio as a whole, we talked about it in previous weeks. You're not going to be talking out of school to say that Kenny could end up being, you know, wrestler of the year, feud of the year, match great of the year, match of all time and greatest feud of all time. Brian, are, has, you re- are you ready for this question? And, it and escalated and, to that level, and it has to be said. This question means more coming – this answer means more coming from you. You're the oldest person on this podcast. Your name is on the marquee, and you are, out of the three of us, the biggest WCW slash NWA mark. Now, prior to this, what many people have called, most people have called the best trilogy – in the history of professional wrestling, what we saw from the Nature Boy Ric Flair, Get Well Soon Nate, and Ricky the Ricky Steamboat um, in the late 80s in WCW slash NWA. I've seen all three of those matches. They're awesome. For me, it's Omega Okada. I like those better. But, Bri, as the N- WCW NWA guy, the name, the man who is on the marquee, Omega Okada or Flair Steamboat, take your pick. 
Oh, it's, a, it's Omega Okada. And, you know, wow. some of that is just the fact that where we are in time, the match quality today as a whole, right, dominates the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. I mean, it, guys, it's not even. It dominates little. 2016, I think. Yeah, like, but he, oh, surely. But here's the difference, though, with the old timers and people like me who protect some of these old time eras is, well, you know, today the psychology isn't up to that level or today the selling isn't up to the level of 89 when Steamboat and Flair. And a lot of times and a lot of times sometimes with WWE, that is true. That's what can hold you back from from praising this era too much, you know, because there's things like we don't need four and a half star matches on Raw and matches that don't matter sometimes. We just don't need people doing three Tope Canhilos in a match, right? Like it doesn't play into the storyline. But this Okada Omega is not connected to that statement because this is as good of storytelling, selling, high spots, cool factor, right? It factor, raw, brutal, everything you could want. I mean, we're going to talk about this Naito Omega final in a second, Nick, which is a good transition here, that had these blown spot teases that felt like blown spots where two or three times it looked like somebody died. It's not just the normal NJPW reaction of, oh my God, that guy almost broke his neck five times in that match. There were blown spots that I'm like, that guy's knocked out cold. And then you go back and you watch, you're like, I think I just got played. That's next level storytelling and psychology. This is in its whole new category. And if there's anybody out there listening who thinks we go too long on NJPW or haven't taken the leap yet, despite hearing us getting fired up, seriously, watch this. It's changing the game. It's changing everything. This is a, it, it, like, you know, people talk about Kurt Cobain, right? Changing everything with Nirvana when grunge started in the 90s. This is that type of comparison. This is a whole new level of the art form. Bright, you mentioned um, Omega Naito. You mentioned the fake blown spots. Tell us what else you liked about that scintillating G1 Climax 27 final won by Tetsuya Naito. You know, I love that Tetsunya Naito went over in the end, right? Because once Omega gets by Okada, your feeling is, okay, well, then this is, you know, Kenny's push again. He'll get back-to-back G1 victories. And, and, and Brian, and here's what's so fascinating about that, right? Like, because in America, Kenny's the guy. It was very easy to tell watching that final that in Japan, Naito's the guy. Exactly. In Japan, he's so over and he's so cool with the tranquil gimmick and the times that he looks like he's going to set up a huge spot and then he just lays down and does, does that the roll gimmick. into the pose. It's so <laughs> it's so freaking good. Yeah, this match had a moment where he pumped fake the pose and then came off with a big spot. Look, this match had high spots, but what set it apart, and not just the fact that Omega is 24 hours removed from Omega Okada 3, which, by the way, might be the fifth best match in pro wrestling history. Like, I know it's hyperbole time, but it really might be. And 24 hours later, Nick, he put on a hellacious physical war with Naito where yes, there were three, four, five times where I thought they broke their necks, where I thought they shortened their careers. The storytelling was great. I loved everything about this match. Nick and Adam, I want to get your take because I think this match does not need to be looked past. I think you put this match almost in the category of Omega Okada. Am I going too far? I mean, it's not one and two, but I think this match was almost just as good as Omega Okada 3. I mean, it's just, it's and you know, like, Bri, to back up what you said to people out there that think we go too long on NJPW here, you're wrong, because if you watch this, you would know how great it was. And to have back-to-back-to-back, three nights in a row, like, it's freaking like like in W I love W I will always my first love will always be WWE if you made me choose I would choose WWE even though NJPW is on this role you if WWE ever did something like this with back to back to back insane nights we'd be talking about it like it was the greatest thing since sliced bread so like 
get on this and watch it because you will see what we're talking about. Um, Omega Naito was was freaking sick. I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't really like my hands are over my head right now. I don't know really what to say because the match was perfect. Um, the start with Naito begging off twice and Omega getting frustrated and the commentators playing that up. We'll talk about the commentary in a little bit. And then Omega begging off before they actually get into it was a great little bit of gamesmanship. You had Omega doing the bullet club pose like three or four times, putting the gun to Naito's head. You had Naito doing his tranquilo gimmick several times over the course of the match. You had series after series of just insane, insane bumps. And I, man, I'll say this, man, I love these guys. These guys are going to have neck injuries. I mean, the bumps that they take are absolutely freaking brutal. Omega's going to have neck issues as he gets older. Okada will, Naito will, a lot of these guys will. For our entertainment, I appreciate it, but I almost don't want to see some of the stuff that they're doing. And those two blown spots, Naito was going to pile drive Omega through a table on the outside purposefully. I didn't know this at the time either. I got played as well. Misses the table and goes down to the outside. You're thinking, oh my God, they just messed up Omega's dead. No, they played us. And the second time... times, Three times I rewind that, Nick, because I was like, this is the end of his career. Like, this is, this is crazy. And, and also, I'm thinking, like, how did... I, I swear to God, I'm thinking, that ruined the match because this can't be a five-star match because they blew it. They didn't blow it. They did it on purpose. And the second one, with Naito's head coming onto the ring post when both guys are on the top rope, I'm thinking, oh, my God, like, this, like Naito's teeth might all be knocked out here. They did that, that on purpose, too. How next level is that? to plan blown spots it's that insane. vicious that are actually vicious because to to pull off the fake blown spots you're still getting hurt pretty bad right how next level is that on psychology like you're just not doing this in WWE and if you are you're doing it one time a year and we're talking about it forever these are happening like twice three times in a match this is incredible and i like the finish with Omega not hitting the one-winged angel, they protect that move. No one kicks out of it. Omega kicks out of the Destino, and then he hits the second one, and Naito gets the win. And just to go back on the crowd reaction here, um, Naito, and I've rehashed the story before. I'll do it one more time quickly here. So Naito, this is his second G1 victory. He won in 2013, was not as over with the crowd. At 2014, he won and did not main event Wrestle Kingdom. Nakamura did in an Intercontinental Championship match, and Naito used that went to Mexico, restarted his career with Los Ingobernables, brought that over to Japan. And I'll tell you, man, for as popular as the Bullet Club is, and I've got two Bullet Club shirts, Los Ingobernables de Japón are more over in Japan than the Bullet Club are. And you saw more LIJ shirts. It wasn't even freaking close here. More LIJ. And I, and I, it was 2013 on the night to win, which you had said correctly the first time. I, I had tried to talk you out of that, but, it, but you know, yeah, LIJ so over, Naito so over in that spot. You saw that and allowed Kenny to play the heel, with, you know, naturally the heel, not like what I mentioned before, where he's so cool, you start to cheer for him as a face because you just want to see him win. But you mentioned the commentary there. Let's get into that real quick because it's important. It, Kevin Kelly's really good, right? The American commentary, they started the first three or four days. They came back for the last three or four days in the tournament. In between was Japanese only on the New Japan site. As good as Don Callis was the first three or four days of this tournament and really did well to put over moves and put over guys, Nick, you and I texted about this. I felt like he was taking away from, from, the, from the presentation down the stretch of that. Um, I, you know, I'm not the most religious guy. Like, I'm not raised Roman Catholic. Can Don Callis stop saying JC on, after every single big move that happens here? Like, it's overkill. He wasn't prepared, it felt like. And I've been a fan of his in the past. He goes during the Omega-Okada match that Omega's never hit Okada with the one-winged angel or Don 
in Omega Okada 2, the biggest spot of the match. Omega does hit him with it, and Okada gets his foot on the ropes. Now, Rom oh. yeah, now, now Romero, his role was to be there, the energy guy. And, and if he's like the number two and there's no one to balance him, that's a problem. But given the fact that it was a three-man booth, I didn't have an issue with him. I'm a Kevin Kelly fan. We saw Kevin Kelly, by the way, at In Your House 96 Mind Games, which we'll get into at the end of the show here, which was pretty funny. I thought Callis was terrible, terrible he, on commentary he, in the main events. He pulled down the, the rent value a little bit there. Kelly was strong, but here's my overall point on that. When the English commentary went away around day four or five of this tournament, it was noticeable, right? You're going Japanese only. It was a step down in your entertainment level. By the end of this tournament, guys, Silver King, I want to hear your take on this. I was almost to the point where I didn't need the English guys to come back. And the reason why that works is because the in-ring storytelling is so good. The great point Nick made you mentioned the start of the Naito Omega match with the constant stop and starting in mind games. It, it speaks for itself on such a high level that it speaks to how good these performers are that I was getting used to the Japanese commentary as almost like background music. I didn't need the Americans to come back necessarily. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't really have an opinion one way or another about the commentary. For me, it's helpful when you're watching a three-hour show and you get distracted by your phone or you want to look at something else to have them, oh, my God, or, or like give you the hint to like look and – yeah, Japanese, they, they raise their voice, and it, it gives but you something. they some... can be raising their voices about anything. You don't know yeah, what it is. Yeah, so, so it's nice to have the English commentary. I said before, if they really want to get a foothold in the United States, every single thing needs to be in English, including their website. But in terms of whether they were good or not, they were fine. Nick was right about the Jesus Christ stuff. It was too much. It was too often. Look at, look at the Jewish guy but... dropping the JC. I say JC. The Jewish guy just goes full on with the, with the and just says it outright. Hey, I like that. He was Jewish. Well, that's fine. You know what? That's actually not, not an unfair point. So we love this. Naito goes over in the end. Naito wins the G1. Looks like we'll get Naito Okada at Wrestle Kingdom. And it looks like they set up an angle after the G1 finish where we will get for the U.S. Championship at Wrestle Kingdom, Kenny Omega against his former tag team partner, Kota Ibushi. Oh, and that, that will be absolutely sick. That got you fired up. And by the way, if you stopped watching this tournament at certain points, watch the last two days, right? The A block and B block final days, because the other matches underneath the final matches really started to set up what's going to be next, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Suzuki and Elgin look like they're going to start a blood war. Can't wait for that one. So watch those. A lot of good things that are going to come out of this tournament. And as you mentioned in an earlier show, Nick, everyone that defeated a champion during this tournament will get a guaranteed title shot down the road. All right. So let's give our in this corner awards to close out our coverage of the G127 Climax Tournament. And let's go around the horn here and name our tournament MVP. man whose name is on the marquee obviously goes first, Brian Campbell. You know, the tournament was so good that you do have three or four legitimate, you know, uh, legitimate competitors for this one. But I have to go Kenny Omega, right? He's the guy that gets you in the door and he's the guy that sends you on happy. There were a few different guys that were must-see. He's must-see on a whole different level. And if you want to know how good Kenny Omega is, you obviously watch Okada and Naito, the two great matches, five-star you can also watch the Toriano match and see how he played along the hmm. Toriano comedy. Yep. And that shows you how good Kenny Omega is, that he can adjust, adjust and adapt like the great Randy Macho Man Savage, like the great Shawn Michaels, to anybody that he is in the ring with. It should surprise no one that my pick for MVP is the greatest wrestler in the world. Today, that man, Tyson Smith, better known to you and yours as Kenneth Omega. It's easily Omega. You can't go back-to-back -back Naito uh, Okada matches like he did in those final two days and not be the MVP. All right, so we all roll with Kenny Omega. He is the obvious choice. Now, this was Brian's idea, and I really like it. You know how, like, in the NBA, they give you first team all NBA and you pick a starting five? We're going to give our first team 
all G1. Now, before we do this, let's get the top three out of the way here. We all have Omega, Okada, and Naito in our top three, I'm guessing? Yes. All right, so we all have those three here. I'm curious as to who the other two will end up being. BC, who are yours? Yeah, 20 competitors in here to try to identify who is the five best. The five best performances deserve to be on this team. I think the fourth one has to be Kota Ibushi. Not only did he make a big leap coming back to NJPW at Freelance the last few years, we obviously saw him at the Cruiserweight Classic with WWE. Every single match he was trying to not just do a five-star, to do a six-star. And you love that spirit and that attitude. My fifth slot, though, goes to Minoru Suzuki. Good call. Because like I mentioned, there were a couple guys that became must-see, no matter who they're wrestling, right? I don't care if they're wrestling some of the bottom guys in this tournament. Let's be honest, like Yoshihashi, for example. Some of the guys that weren't on the same level as others. Suzuki, this madman, this psychopath. Every match was physical, intense, crazy, great storytelling. That's my five right uh, there. My five, we give you the three already. You know who my fourth is? And I'm. it's a hard four for me. It's a strong number four for me. So there was no debate for me as to... Four and then five. My fourth. Everything is evil. Oh. Yo, evil was freaking ridiculous in this tournament. Had one of the best matches of the tournament with Omega and followed it up with being the first person in a calendar year to beat Kazuchika Okada clean. And that was a decisive victory, and he was phenomenal in that match. We talked about Sonata at the beginning of the G1, looking like the breakout star of Los Ingobernables de Japón, obviously, aside from Naito. Evil surpassed him in my eyes. Evil, evil is a future star, megastar in New Japan. Loved what I saw from him. And I debated my number five between a couple guys, but ultimately, Bri, for the reasons you referenced, I'll have Kota Ibushi as my fifth. I'm exactly aligned with Nick. Evil really impressed me. I, I kind of want to throw Daryl in there a little bit because I – you know, his uh, you saw him give the fist bump to uh, Naito at the end of, of the G1 Climax. I, I pop for Daryl every time I see him. I love it. But no, being serious, uh, Kota Ibushi, I, got, I told you guys last week or two weeks ago, every single He's match, your guy. You've been every single match he was in, this guy is an athletic, young stud. He's a guy who I understand why WWE wanted him so bad. They would have misused him, but I understand why they wanted him. He is going to be an amazing world champion one day. And Adam, 35. Surprised the heck out oh, of Oh, wow. Is he really? That's ridiculous. Well, he looks like he's like 22. Yeah, that's crazy. I did not know that. Um, but Evil also extremely impressive late. And if you go on a run like that to end a tournament, you deserve to be in that conversation. All right. Um, so we may end up having some overlap here or, or same choices here. So if you've already named this guy, no need to, um, to drone on about it here. So your most improved guy, Bri, that you saw in G1 was... I want to say Juice Robinson, but the reality is that is Michael Elgin. It has just really elevated to a whole new level. Watch the Omega match. Watch the Okada match. He was in the B block, which I think was better for him because you got to see him against really high caliber guys. And to see a big man put off, pull out that kind of style and work that fast and that impressively. He, I, you know, I love Juice, but Elgin came over the top and really was big. My most improved is Evil because he went from being, in my eyes, a mid-carder to a main event talent. Silver King. Elgin, yeah, absolutely. Star on the rise, Brian Campbell. You know, it's juice in this spot because I think that he was booked to be a star on the rise. He's on the lower half of the standings, but he had a couple upset wins, and I think Beat that— Beat Omega, yeah. Beat Omega, there's some talk maybe that NJPW comes back to the U.S., goes to Chicago where Juice is from, and they do an Omega match down the line. I think Juice is just showing you, that, above all else, 
that if WWE pulled back the reins a little bit and let some of those guys, and we know that juice came from NXT, right? As CJ Parker, if they let some of those guys be who they could end up being and not who WWE wants them to be, you may see a different story. But the work as a pure babyface, this guy's great. I I should like L. I mean, I think Evil's the answer for me as well because I'm so impressed by Evil. But I won't give him most improved and star on rise. Uh, I can't disagree with you. I think it's clearly juice. And remember what you said, guaranteed title shots against the guy you beat at some point in the near future. What I think we may see in Chicago when, because Omega is coming to Chicago, juice is from Chicago. I think you will get Omega versus juice then and there. That match will be awesome. Juice Robinson, the answer. I'm also going with a non-Japanese wrestler, but it's a different one. It's Zack Sabre Jr. They established early in the tournament by him beating, I screwed up. I should have said Saber Jr. Yeah. Silver King gets. Was Silver it, King did he beat? Did he beat? Was it Naito the first? He beat Tanahashi. Tanahashi in the first match. They established. Made, made him tap out. They established when he beat Tanahashi that he could win any single match he was in, and every single match that he had in the tournament, it looked like he was going to win. He impressed me. He is a young potential next Brian Danielson. Wow, I mean, I, I don't know if he's got the charisma of Brian Danielson, but it's not a terrible point by you. And look, I screwed up because Sabre should have been my answer there, and I was a Sabre guy at the beginning, so I blew that there. A blown spot by yours truly, Brian. Great thing what Sabre did, and Suzuki was the other guy who did this in the tournament, made everybody fight his style. I know it's storyline, right? We know what we're watching here. But in the storyline, made every wrestler have to fight his style. That was fun to watch. It really was. Um, and I loved it from Sabre. You're going to get Sabre Tanahashi also in an IC title match by virtue of Sabre's win over Tanahashi. And our best match of the tournament, I think... There's so many good ones, right? So, it, like, it feels silly just to say it's one of two matches, but how could it be anything, Bry, other than Omega Okada 3 or Omega Naito in the final? I'm going to probably slightly lean to Omega Naito. I think you can go as far as saying that was a five-star five star match. I thought that was the best match of the tourney in a spot where it needed to be in the finals, right? It accomplished all we said. Slight, though, my favorite, I just want to mention real quick, Omega Suzuki. It was from the first week was so badass. That might be my favorite match, but yeah, shout out to Knight to Omega. You know the recurring theme here? Kenny Omega, by the way. There we go. Yeah, um, for me, it's um, it's Omega Okada slightly over Omega Naito and probably only because of the storyline that had been told earlier in the year. Maybe without that, I go with Omega Naito, but given it was wrapping up the trilogy, I'll go with Omega Okada. All I'm going to tell you is Nick is about to get mad at me. Omega Naito was easily, for me, the best match of the G1. You can, look, and like I said, you can make o that case, for sure. Omega Naito, for me, I think, was better than Omega Okada 1 and Omega Okada 2. And I will go so far, and this may be some recency bias, but I'm telling you, at the end of that match, I was standing up like a 13-year-old Silver King watching WWE going crazy. You were the Silver Prince at that point. Stone Cold Steve Austin, Rock Main events. I was screaming. I was. They juked me out of one finish after another. Guys, it's a top five match I've ever seen, and it might be the best match I've ever seen for all the reasons that both of you laid out so skillfully earlier. The storytelling, the fake-blown spots, the incredible finish, and Kenny Omega being back-to-back -back crazy matches. That match is an all-timer for me. It's an easy choice for best match of the tournament. I don't think that you said I'd get mad. I don't think anything you said was really that out of the ordinary. Well, I, I put mean, him over Omega Okada. I so, mean, yeah. I, look, I mean, it was. I disagree with that, I but know. like, but it was, it was amazing. It's like five stars or five and a half stars. Like, what, what do you like better? They were all great. A terrific G1 tournament. 
I just hope New Japan can stay as good because I'm really into it right now as we head now into Wrestle Kingdom coming up right at the beginning of the new year. Now, if there were a fictional Wrestle Kingdom in the United States, um, the Queen would be Stephanie McMahon, the Emperor would be Vince McMahon, and the King would likely be... Triple H, Paul Levesque, and Bri, you had the chance to sit down with him. Tell the listeners what they're about to hear. Yeah, really good sit down here. Paul Paul brings it. When you talk to corporate Paul, he does field every question. He does bring it. Look, WWE is going to launch this May Young Classic 32 Women's Tournament coming up. August 28th, the tournament will kick off. You're going to see a Bracketology special show Sunday night after SummerSlam on the WWE Network. That tournament will run through September 12th when those finals will air live from Las Vegas. Talk to Triple H about a lot of different topics. We started off asking him with the success of the Cruiserweight Classic, with the success of that UK tournament what can fans expect from this may young classic man i can tell you this um i've been you know obviously conceptually pushing for this for a long time and then getting into the creation of it and originally thinking it'd be 16 women but as we went around the globe and started kind of digging for women we man we started getting more and more pleasantly surprised at what we were finding and ended up with this 32 woman you know, tournament that I was really excited to produce and I thought was going to be really good. And um, kind of even talking to the girls there, like I was really excited about it as we were going into the day of shooting and having them all in, in place and in town and doing what we call the car wash where they came in and were doing all the media and, and all the stuff for us. And I was like, man, this is going to be really good. I was watching them train and um, I was blown away by it. You know, uh, a lot of people that were there that are part of my team that worked on the cruiserweights and that worked on the UK and that worked on this, a lot of people uh, thought it was going to be good as well. And a lot of people came up to me when we were done saying, wow, hey, this might have been better than the cruiserweight classic. Wow. Like the level, the level of athleticism, the level of storytelling, the level of everything that these women brought to the table of the heart and soul, I think in some way, I don't know how they couldn't have, but they, they knew, man, that this was the opportunity. They just knew that this is their moment in the sun, everything that they've ever done. And that grind for them has been huge. I've been saying it to them and to everybody else. Like these girls all got in the business, the same reason all the guys did, right? They, they saw this one day and it became everything to them. They thought it was the best form of entertainment they'd ever seen. And they thought I got to do this. Except when they started doing it, there was no pot of gold anywhere for them, right? Like the, the guys jumped on this rainbow and started riding it. And then, man, there was just there was this opportunity for this pot of gold at the end if they made it. The women didn't have that. Right. The women got in it and they grind and they put their bodies through the same thing. And then, you know, you, you look at the indie shows at the armories or wherever all around the world. And there's maybe one women's match on them. There's maybe uh, a spot for them but very few and far between. So that opportunity is very thin. And then the, that opportunity to really create something out of it and, and become a, a star and have this be your life, man, that was almost unheard of. Well, the, you know? the buzz for this tournament seemed to really pick up when those, the video emerged of you and Ronda Rousey, who, who was in attendance at the July tapings, uh, another video emerged of her four horsewomen staring off against the NXT's original four horsewomen. This felt like a real big deal, and I'm sure it's, it's part of the overall buzz that goes with it. What can you tell us about your conversations with Rousey, about what everybody wants to ask you? Is there going to be more? Look, I think that Ronda's um, 
been fascinated with our business for a very long period of time. There's so many similarities, right? But you don't have some of the, um, you know, some of the, I guess, the competitive drawbacks maybe that come with being that elite level fighter. You know, I, I, it's funny. I remember when we did the stuff with Ronda in, in, uh, at WrestleMania and uh, she was talking about the roar of the crowd and, and it was the most amazing thing she'd ever felt and heard. And she said, you know, I've never been, a, I've never allowed myself to even hear it when I fight. She can't. It's not about the crowd. It's not about entertainment. It's not about are they booing me or cheering me or how loud it is. It's about a focused one thing. The, the, we do the exact opposite. Our whole thing is about entertaining that crowd, right? And getting them to react and doing all those things. It's fun. Um, and I think that she's enamored and fascinated with uh, with what we do. I know, uh, look, she was there to support her friend in in uh, Shayna Baszler, right. who did phenomenal in the tournament and is 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 uh, you know very skilled. She was there to support her, um, and she had a great time. I I don't know that I ever once looked out in that crowd and saw her without this just ear to ear grin on her face, and she was like a little kid after every every uh, break there would be when she was, when I would talk to her like a little kid, what that means, unsure. What that means down the line, I think she's unsure. I think she's in transition period in her life. I think she's in a great place. Uh, I think she's, I think she's getting married soon or something. And, um, you know, look, there's, she's got a lot going on and, um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm all about creating opportunities. That's what the May Young Classic is about, right? right? Is creating opportunities for these women that they've never had in front of them before. If I'm, Ronda Rousey wants that opportunity, I'd be happy to talk to her about it. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure the uh, the WWE Universe would pop for that one. We got NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 3 coming up, of course, Saturday, August 19th, the night before SummerSlam, coming back to the Barclays Center, which has seemed like a, a great home for you guys. I know NXT on tour right now as we record this in California, but five years into this thing, how much has the uh, the brand evolved in your eyes? I mean, it feels like it's out of that infancy period, that it's at that next level stage. Where is it in your eyes as sort of the father, you know, the, the paternal heir of this looking down in terms of where you want it to be compared with where it is now? So, you know, it's a great question because I think that when you first looked at NXT, it was like all of a sudden, you know, we started something, it was different, it got this huge buzz, and man, it was just explosive, right? All of a sudden, we went from... Uh, from working, you know, little 500 seat shows to selling out the Barclays Center in a very, very short period of time, and everybody was blown away by it. And and then we were able to do it again the following year. This is third year. Um, Barclays like our home. SummerSlam now the takeover at Barclays is like our WrestleMania. Um, but when you start to look at the brand as a whole, if you if you look at the posters from the Barclays Center from takeovers in Brooklyn every year. The, the the people that are on the, the poster are different every single year. The brand is completely changed every single year. The draft happens, the talent get called up, right? That first year, there's almost nobody on that card that's on the next year's card. That card, there's almost nobody on that card that's on this year's card. It's completely changed, but yet the brand is staying strong it remains. Um, it's one of the most popular shows in the network. That, to me, when you get past that initial, hey, wow, this is a neat, shiny new thing. You know, it's 
you buy a new car, it's the greatest car you ever drove until you have it for three <laughs> or six months and you get the first dent in it. And then it's, eh, it's, my, it's my car, you know. Uh, when you lose that initial uh, shine, then what do you have? I feel like we're way out of that initial shine period and we still have this bright, vibrant brand. It's gone through a transition. No doubt about it. And I was very clear with everybody about that. You know, a year ago, we got strip mined at the draft and we had to reset, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. Um, and I had to recreate a lot of things and I had to come up with a new team and, and work with that new team and get everybody set. But I feel like in the last two or three months, NXT has gotten itself back into a place where we're firing on all cylinders again. I feel like we've gotten in a, in a position where our talent are firing on all cylinders. We're training them better. Um, we are writing better uh, stories and shows and just, I feel like we're back, man, and we're firing on all cylinders again. And I'm excited about this. I feel almost like it's funny we're saying the Barclays Center and this NXT takeover is, is a homecoming. It is homecoming. We're going to have a lot of the, the stars there from Seth Rollins to, you know, the Finn Balors and the, the, the guys that helped to create and make NXT what it is and Charlotte and Sasha and all of them. They'll be there. Um, and, and, and being a part of the show as, as this homecoming, but it's a homecoming for us because Barclays and, and SummerSlam has become like our WrestleMania, but I'm, I'm excited about it because I feel like we're at this almost like relaunch point of just, Hey, we're back. And then we're yeah. back. And I say it every year when we get there, um, you know, Saturday night, we're going to put the bar up and on Sunday they got to, they got to, step up to that bar and we put a hell of a bar up every year and we're going to do it again this year. Well, Paul, the close here, this is loosely related to NXT. It's not the nineties anymore where there's no dominant number two competitor for WWE to look at. That's knocking on your door, but obviously there's wrestling outside of the walls of WWE. Everyone knows what's going on in Japan right now. What ways has the success of other promotions in recent years forced you to evolve creatively? Because when I look at that incredible match last week on NXT between Kyle O'Reilly and Aleister Black, I can feel the influences of other things going around around the globe in, in wrestling. Is that an example, would you say, of, of sort of forcing you to make adjustments? I, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think anything forces anyone to make adjustments. I think it's just the, the world changes. What people will accept changes. What people will like changes. What people's styles that I bring in. I'm not trying to change these performers. I'm trying to give them a platform. Yeah. And then take them on that platform and make the biggest global star he can make. Whether that goes through NXT and then be goes on a Raw or SmackDown or whatever that is. All these kids, I want them to be headlined in WrestleMania, man. And so to me, it's all about that opportunity and that platform for them. Um, I think th there's, I think in anything, the, the way games are played, the way talent change the game, the way they play it, right? Because... Kyle O'Reilly brings a different style. That's not a style that he brought in from a promotion. That's Kyle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Alistair Black brings in a style from someplace else. That's not the pro a promotional style. That's him. Um, even Nakamura, you know, um, you can say strong style, but to be quite honest, is there anything like Nakamura? Is anybody else doing what Nakamura is doing? No, it's Nakamura. I can look at 20 other people in that same organization or in, in many of those places and think I really don't care about them. And 
not because they're not great, but just that they don't bring the, the that game to the table. Mm-hmm. Nakamura does. Kyle does. Alistair does. Uh, Drew McIntyre does. You know, all, all those guys. And, and the, the game changes based around the players. No different than in the 90s. Austin, myself, Rock, Taker, you know, Shawn Michaels. They, they, all those players changed the game, right, and, and, and changed what the style was. When, when you say what's the number two promotion, WWE doesn't have a, a, a promotion kind of knocking on its door, pushing them. Ron SmackDown do. Ron SmackDown got a promotion right on their tail, pushing them to do more. That promotion is going to run a show on Saturday night at the Barclays Center. It's called NXT. <laughs> They're going to set a bar, and the main roster is going to have to step up to that bar. And trust me, those are all people that are coming from NXT. And now the kids that are in NXT are pushing them to do the same thing that they pushed the people in front of them to do. Seth Rollins sat in uh, the Barclays Center not that long ago and watched Bailey and Sasha Banks. He came backstage and he had tears in his eyes. He said it was dust, but it wasn't. And he had tears <laughs> and he had tears in his eyes. And he looked at me and he said, "I'm going to be up all night trying to think how I I surpass that." Oh my God, like I was totally relaxed about tomorrow and now I'm not going to sleep all night because I got to be able to, I'm, I'm the main event on the main roster of SummerSlam and I got to beat that. If that's not the ultimate compliment of what takes place in NXT, I don't know what is. And, and if you're looking for the promotion that pushes WWE, it's NXT. That, that's a that's a great answer. It's a great way to look at it. I, I appreciate you you fielding the question and your time. A, a huge SummerSlam weekend coming from Takeover to SummerSlam from the Bracketology special to launch the the May Young Classic. We look forward to it, Paul. Thanks so much, and best of luck to you. Thank you, man. Look forward to seeing everybody in New York. Great stuff there with Brian Campbell and Triple H, Paul Levesque. I like how you called him Paul throughout the entire thing. That was a, that was a nice touch, Brian. Um, two things really noteworthy to me, and then we'll we can spin around here and see what we like. But I think there are really two major takeaways. Number one, Ronda Rousey's coming to WWE at some point, and I love the way that he put that. And it was a really great answer when he goes. When she fights, you tune the crowd out because it's not about the crowd. Here, it's about the crowd. And she got so juiced from being at WrestleMania, I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to see Ronda Rousey in WWE at some point, possibly soon. It really got you excited to feel that. And if anybody listened to the uh, MMA Hour and MMAfighting.com this week, Shayna Baszler, who's in this May Young Classic, was interviewed on there. And at the end, Ariel Hawander said, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Ronda. Now, while Shayna kept the the cards close to her chest about her her friend and training partner there, Rhonda. That interview really made you believe that Rhonda's not only training right now, but that she does plan on coming to pro wrestling. I know Triple H had to also keep his cards relatively close to his chest. Maybe there's no contract signed now, but I get the feeling, Silver King, like we will see Rousey. Yeah, it's a perfect fit. I mean, you can get rid of Brock Lesnar, insert Ronda Rousey, and it'd be perfect. Now, the second thing that I found to be noteworthy, I lied, it's actually three, but these two dovetail together. Number one, um, his comments, he goes, he wouldn't say NJPW, which was great, but he referred to like the other promotion like in Japan. He's <laughs> referring to NJPW. Goes, they're not our competition. Raw and SmackDown's competition is NXT. Or it's not. <laughs> and NJPW's gaining a foothold, which is why we just spent 30 glorious minutes breaking down the G1, which was awesome and was better than anything WWE has put out in quite some time. 
He obviously doesn't believe that. He can't come out and say, though, NJPW is our closest competitor because it puts some gravitas behind NJPW. That's bad business. So you understand why he said it, but, Bri, there's absolutely no way, no way in hell that he meant it. And he also went on, kind of, to bury some of NJPW's guys when he goes, I like all the way, by the way, everyone calls him what, Nakamura, and Triple H calls him Nakamura. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and he goes... Basically, Nakamura is the only one I was interested to. Oh, you wouldn't want Kenny Omega on your roster? Big boy, Tetsuya Naito couldn't get over in front of an American audience. Trips? I mean, give me a break, Bri. I love the answer from Trips there because it was a heel answer. That answer wasn't Paul Levesque. That answer was Triple H of the authority who basically gave that answer. You love him? Yeah, he could have put over NJPW, but he didn't. He put over NXT, and the key point there was he said, I got Nakamura, right? I got Kyle O'Reilly. I got all these guys who had been in NJPW before because I wanted their styles. But then he mentioned there were 20 others in that locker room that I didn't get for a reason because they don't have that. And that is basically... Oh, and and he also said, he goes, goes, Kyle O'Reilly style is not... It's Kyle O'Reilly. It's like, shit... Or like it's not. It's the new. It's the Japanese style. I mean, right? Like, like he can't say it, but he has to know it. Hey, he must protect his house. I, I like the way that he fielded that, though. But obviously, we know what's really going on. They wouldn't have acquired Styles, Nakamura, Finn Balor, Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, Kyle O'Reilly if they weren't watching. And JPW and Ring of Honor, and you know, there's other Ring of Honor names who have obviously are now filling out this roster full on. Obviously, WWE has has evolved and been forced to evolve in certain degrees but his you know overall thing was kind of basically like we're not changing our style because of them and maybe nick maybe that's a little bit of the problem right because we're popping for some of these reasons why njpw is so good i love it so kenny omega will call triple h and be like hey trips like i'd like to come wrestle and triple h will hang up and be like we got nakamura we're good we don't don't need (laughs) you buddy um on the last point that you made Um, was really prescient because it's going to go right into my last point, right? When you said, maybe that's part of the problem. And maybe it's part of the problem, their unwillingness to adapt because of the man who's ultimately in charge of the two main shows. The man whose name is on the marquee, right? Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Triple H's most noteworthy quote, which I think would fly under the radar, most people listening, but your boy here who's got years of experience listening to this, when he said, about NXT, when he's referring to the deck being reshuffled after Nakamura and others get called up, said, we have gotten better. The work has gotten better. We have started to gel and said, and quite frankly, he didn't say quite frankly, but he said, the writing has gotten better. That tells me that Triple H understands the difference between good and bad and gives yours truly hope for one day, and no one wants it to ever happen, but he's in his 70s now, when Vincent Kennedy McMahon is no longer around calling the shots, that it gives me some hope that if Triple H steps in there, that he can make this product potentially better, now at least, not saying attitude era-wise, but better than what we've seen recently in the PG era under the leadership and stewardship of VKM. Very well said. Everything we love about NXT, you're not seeing on the main roster, right? When they exit those doors, they don't bring that style and raw, gritty feel. Look, it might not be NJPW Ring of Honor, but NXT is different from the main brand, and it's different because of Triple H. So we circle back and give him his props, give him credit for, for and, and, and thank him for doing this interview. And yeah, long term, do I want him on the book? You better. 
believe it. So here's the deal, guys. NXT TakeOver coming up this Saturday, Barclays Center in Brooklyn. Brian and I will be there for it. This is a packed episode of the show. We can't get into all the big matches here. I want to hit on uh, the big two here at Silver King. We'll start with you here. I know you're a big NXT guy, bigger than me. Um, Asuka against Ember Moon for the women's title. You know, I thought NXT's really struggled for the last few months, and in trip, you know, Trips basically talked about that in the interview. What you're seeing now with this TakeOver card, starting with Asuka and Ember Moon, is you're seeing feuds developed and now reaching apexes. And there was a gap in time when they weren't, but I am juiced to see Asuka, who I've told you is the best wrestler, man or woman in NXT, and one of the best overall in WWE against Ember Moon. It, it gets me thinking here. What are they going to do? It's 500 days she has this title. Is she going to drop it to Ember Moon in Brooklyn? I don't think so. I think Asuka keeps this title. They wait until after the Mae Young Classic to restock NXT with women. And once that happens, she drops the belt. So for me, Asuka goes over. I love Ember Moon. I love the top rope stunner. I just don't see it happening, BC. What about you? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I'll give him credit, though, for making Ember Moon into a believable opponent. I didn't think she was believable the first time around in Orlando at WrestleMania weekend takeover at that point when Asuka defeated her. And Asuka had to kind of cheat as a heel to do that. You still keep it on Asuka. You need to let her enter the main roster with the belt, the unbeaten record, all that gravitas. Nick, I don't want to glaze past, though, that tag team championship that's cool, on the market. I, I kind of did, so I'm glad that you're bringing it back here to go, go for this. it. It's yeah. Authors of Pain defending the titles against Sanity, and anyone who saw TakeOver Orlando this year knows Authors of Pain. For that, that match side. was great, to be fair. It really was. Can give you a match of the year type match and a good work rate against the smaller guys. The reason why I like this match is we're seeing them against big guys who can equal their size, violence, and ferocity, insanity. Kelly and Dane, right? Some of those guys on that side. This has me fired up and intrigued. Do they come out to frayed ends of sanity by Metallica? Because if they don't, they're really missing something. They don't, but their theme song is awesome. The way they have that police light going around the arena, the smoke, everything about Sanity right now. And, and by the way, Nikki Cross is the best thing about Sanity. If I want Asuka in a feud, I want it to be with Nikki Cross, but that's another story. She's over the top, though, Nikki Cross. I've told you, like, I like the craziness, but it's too crazy. It's like you like a girl that's crazy, but not as crazy as she is. BC, do you think there's a title change here? Because personally, I think Authors of Pain is headed to the main roster. They need tag teams, and these guys are ready. It could happen. It could happen. The main roster could also have other tag teams coming together like Ambrose Rollins, sure. like Finn Balor, Bray Wyatt. Oh, did I just tease something right there? <laughs> all right, all right. So let's let, let's hold let's let's hold that tease coming up for our SummerSlam preview shortly, but we gotta talk Rude McIntyre title match BC. What do you think? Look, uh, here's the thing about Bobby Rude, all right? He's every the presentation is so good. He's in this weird in between spot. I think he's too good to be NXT champion any longer and stay in NXT. But I don't think he's good enough to be a top-level WWE champion. No, he's a mid-carder. The look and presentation is great, but the wrestling just isn't top, top level. So I think it's time to get the belt off him and send him. Look, he's always pushing 40. Send him to the main roster. Drew McIntyre looks really good right now. Recharge coming off of that run on the indies, coming off that run with TNA last great year. Great theme music, by the way, too. Oh, yes. And I think What's he's that getting... metronome I hear? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I can sing the whole—I know every word to the song. He's finding out how good he can be. He's got future business if you've been watching NXT, likely against Roderick Strong after this. It makes sense that he wins and Bobby Roode debuts on Monday or Tuesday night. See, here's the thing. I don't think there's a spot for Bobby Roode on the main roster, even as a mid-carder. They have too many male singles wrestlers. What is Bobby Roode? I love Bobby Roode in NXT as champion. 
what's he bringing to the table on the main roster? I don't see it. I, I think he's got he, a faction and a stable that matters and, and put him in there, right? You want to redo the Four Horsemen idea I had? Make him a big part of that. If they're going to do the idea you had and steal it right from the In This Corner podcast, then I'm down for it. But other than that, I think you keep the belt on him. You let Roderick Strong get the win off him, make him champion, have McIntyre maybe turn heel, and you do that kind of feud. That's what I'm saying. So since Brian Campbell and yours truly will be at NXT on Saturday night, you know damn well we will be in attendance for SummerSlam on Sunday night. I think the start time for SummerSlam, what was it, 6.30 a.m. Eastern, and it'll wrap up (laughs) around midnight Eastern on the East Coast. By the way, that two-hour preview show starting at 5 p.m., which will have matches. So you're looking at what, guys? Six hours? Again? Yeah. Six. I, I mean, I just remember being at WrestleMania and thinking, like, as Reigns was making his entrance, I need a nap, like, because I was exhausted. Um, so this will be pretty we also, long. We also got there two hours early to work. So we were there early. Then there's a two-hour kickoff show. Then there was the whole show. Good times in Orlando with the Silver King and the Brian Campbell. So here's the deal. There's a lot of matches. We're going to touch on all of them. But we are going to be quick on the ones that don't matter. We'll give you a little more on the ones that do. Let's start off with one that no one really gives a damn about. It's the Battle of Big. Show and Cass Enzo in the Shark Cage BC. I do, this is weird, right? I don't know where they're going. Obviously, we shouldn't really care, okay? The feud got a little bit better. They're doing a better job pushing Cass as a singles person and as a heel. I just don't think we have any reason to care. My question is, what did the involvement of Gallows and Anderson mean for the future in this? If it, you end up having, I kind of liked it, dude. I right. kind of liked it. And he fit in with Cass, by the way, like the trunks and the, the, the patterns and the colors. If we've been wanting them to do forever, what? Make the Bullet Club in WWE, right? They've already patented Balor Club. There's already T-shirts out there. I don't know if Balor has to be a part of it, but make some kind of heel faction that involves Anders, Anderson and Gallows and Big Cass and make your own Bullet Club. That you would be cool. You know what just hit That's- me? You know what just hit me? What you were saying, like, when we were talking about Triple H and, like, the fact that they he says they're not influenced by New Japan. New Japan is basically... A, a series of factions, right? Everyone's in a faction, whether it's Chaos, Bullet Club, Los Ingobernables, Suzuki Gun. I I think we might be seeing, and it, not for the worst, I think, maybe some more factions in WWE because I like I thought that when Alec Gallows and Anderson came out to make the save for Cass on Monday night, like, you put, like, Finn Balor, not that they would do that because Balor would probably stay face, but, but man, like, I like the idea. See, that adds some juice to the proceedings if you involve Gallows and Anderson, right? You can use multiple people where you don't have to have them in their own feuds, right? You have a larger feud with a larger faction. League of Nations didn't work because they didn't care about it. Do something that we care about it. This match, I don't care or know where we're going, though. Okay, we've spent entirely too much time talking about <laughs> it. I'll take the L on that one. Let's move on. Cruiserweight title match. Cool moment on Raw. Akira Tozawa ends Neville's championship reign clean to win the Cruiserweight belt, which probably means, BC, that we will see Neville win it back on Sunday at SummerSlam think you have to do that there so give him credit for popping us we a title change we didn't see coming it did add extra juice i didn't want to see neville's run end because he's been so strong but the title change tozawa winning going up on apollo cruz and titus o'neill's shoulders it worked this week on 205 live when they tried to have a celebration and neville got so angry that he broke it up it did give you that picture that it goes back on neville where it belongs Guys, we know Neville still hasn't feuded with Cedric Alexander, still hasn't feuded with a couple other cruiserweights that you can do big things with. Why not send Chad Gable down there, by the way? Do Chad Gable and Neville? That's, that'll raise the round of 205 Live. That's just me spitballing for now. Go back on Neville. But credit to Zawa, who's been great. I, I still, God bless you, man, for watching 205 Live on a weekly basis. Next up, Randy Orton and Rusev. I'll just say one thing about this match. I think that they, because I crushed the booking of it recently, I think that they've given you a little something here to care about the match. A little something here. I think that the match will be good because both these guys are good, but this match is a success for me 
if one thing and one thing only happens. Rusev must win. Rusev cross, Rusev machka, but you know what's going to happen? Rusev will cross, Rusev will machka, and Rusev will job because hey, Orton has lost at three straight pay-per-views. Well, how dare you say or say that Rusev must win when you defended to the death why Randy Orton had a win on, on SmackDown a couple that weeks ago. That was different. He had jobbed three times in a row to Jinder Mahal. He had to get his win back. I mean, come on. I have nothing. You know, when they say if you don't have anything nice to say about something, don't say anything at all. I don't care about this feud. I know the talent involved, but they haven't made me care. Adam, you got anything to add in why I should care? Play that zipper sound. I have nothing to say either. I don't give a damn about this match. All right. Something got the sound effect. Wow. Wow. That's that's pretty much that sums it up. All right. Uh, Next, Cena versus Corbin. We've talked about this a little bit already. No need to really get deep into it. I'll just say that if WWE cares even a scintilla about the future of Baron Corbin, he better win this match. Yes, he he has to. You're 100 percent right. But again, and I know you said they couldn't have done it because Cena was a heel. Could you imagine how much this match would have been upgraded had had Corbin had the belt? Had he successfully cashed in? Just, just just, a thought here, that if WWE is ever going to do something turning John Cena heel, I don't think Baron Corbin's going to be the guy that they're going to well, do it with. You didn't have, what I'm saying is there were other ways around it, right? You didn't have to do the heel turn to, to have the belt on him. But let's just say, okay, let's say he was successful in, in cashing in and in, in John was outside the ring. That would have obviously raised the rent on this. Their attempt was to raise the rent on this by doing the cash in. I care more. So it was successful. I just don't care a ton at this point. Silver King, but, who should go over, Cena or Corbin? John Cena has to win this match. I legitimately believe them taking the briefcase off Baron Corbin was Vince or Trips or whoever saying, we tried, it doesn't work, he can't cut a promo, he's not good in the ring, he's not ready to be champion or be a main eventer. I think Cena wins this match clean and easy. All right, let's spend a little bit of time here on the Raw Tag Team title match because we haven't, this is a different show here with the Triple H interview and the full G1 review, so he didn't do Hero Zero, didn't hit a lot from Raw. I thought that the the Ambrose-Rollins opening segment of Raw was pretty well done. The crowd went freaking insane for it. And credit, by the way, to the crowd in Boston on Monday night, Providence on Tuesday night. Outstanding crowds that really made the Silver King claps, that really made both nights feel special. So I'm kind of into this now, and I can't believe I'm saying that. Sheamus and Cesaro, BC, against Ambrose and Rollins. The reason why you're in it is because they put attention to the detail. They made you care about it, and you said it best. If you had any misgivings that what happened on Monday didn't work, if you felt that they stretched out too long, whatever, just listen to the crowd. This works. It works to put the belts on Ambrose and on Rollins. It's probably the best use you could have of them for a while since like there's so many upper mid-card guys right now that if they were in feuds, Ambrose and Rollins, it probably wouldn't matter. And it certainly sets the stage for them to eventually feud against each other. One thing I'd like, though, I'd like involvement in Roman Reigns in some form moving forward in this, even if it's a minor involvement, if it's just a mention, some tease that we could get the full it's gotta sh- happen. something, some involvement anyway. You got to let the shield go over here. It's best for business. I predicted this months ago when we were first sort of fantasy booking the ideas of what we could do at SummerSlam. This is a great move. Yeah. Um, Sheamus also has, I think, a movie or a TV show to shoot. So this t- these titles are changing, and I like the idea about Roman Reigns. Like you said, there is no reason that WWE doesn't have factions like they used to, as Nick pointed out earlier, and there's zero reason. These, can't, these guys can't be tag team champs. Roman can't win the WWE title or the IC title or whatever. They get back to what they were doing, and then Ambrose gets jealous of Rollins or gets jealous of Reigns, turns heel. You recycle the whole thing. It will work. The fans will buy it and love it, and they'll do a really good job giving Ambrose that push that he he was not succeeding as a face. Even though the fans go over for him, 
you don't just care whether he wins or has a title or not. You will care if he's a heel destroying people's lives. And the one reason to have factions, by the way, Nick, merch, right? If you're WWE, new merch, right? Get, get these factions together. 100%, and I would love to see that. Let's get predictions, no analysis here. New Day versus Uso, SmackDown tag titles. Bri, who do you got? Uh, the prediction will be to be a great match. So that's the end of my analysis right there. I think, though, that I have no problem if they go back and put it on the Usos because I don't want this this feud to end right now. I like what's going on. Just give us a good match. That's all I care about. SmackDown women's title, Naomi defending against Natalia. I predict a cash-in. I think that this ends with Carmella winning the championship. Naomi's run has been trash. All right? Straight up. Her run as champion has, from the booking Really to the presentation, they haven't presented her as a strong champion. I don't think she ever should have won the belt to begin with. I'm not saying she's trash. I do have problems with her gimmick, especially now with the extended wig that she wears. I just think it's it's kind of buffoonish. You're uh, not presenting your champion in the best light. This athletic, strong uh, wrestler who can work in there. You're presenting her as a, what, that she goes to a rave? I hate everything about that. It's Natalia was a surprise to be in this spot, but she doesn't deserve the belt right now. Let Carmella cash it in. You'll have a fun SummerSlam moment. WWE's presentation of Naomi might not be great, but Naomi's presentation of Naomi is great because Naomi, very sexy. I'm a huge fan. Raw Women's Championship, Sasha Banks goes over Nia Jackson. A pretty damn good match on Raw to set up Banks against Bliss. BC, who do you got? I care about this match a lot. I actually am very excited to see this. Probably my top four most anticipated matches for this whole card. And some of that, by the way, is an indictment. That the second half of this card, they haven't spiced it up like you'd like to for a SummerSlam. Who do I got? It's time to put Banks over. It's time to fulfill the potential that she had from the beginning. She touched on that potential during that Charlotte feud, right? But she never had a long moment in the sun to be as good as she could be. Let's not forget, guys, when she got called up at the main roster for the first time, there were people, experts in this business, who made comments that said Sasha has the rock potential. The rock, right? I'm a huge but Sasha fan. I think Sasha will go over as well in this match. I like both these competitors. No, let me finish that. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the guy with the really bad arm tattoo right now. That guy, <laughs> that kind of potential. Obviously, she hasn't come close to fulfilling it. But if you want her to fulfill it, she's got to become a heel and she's got to carry a belt for a long time. Hopefully, those two things will start to happen soon. She's the best. She's the best gimmick for any woman in WWE. Maybe you can make a case with Charlotte as well. Or Bliss. She's the best in-ring performer, I think, again, with Charlotte head-to-head right there. And giving Sasha Banks the women's championship in Brooklyn, New York. I know she's from Boston, but that Brooklyn crowd has seen her in NXT for years. They will pop huge. You want to talk about a moment at SummerSlam? Sasha Banks beating Alexa Bliss for the title? That's a moment at the Barclays Center. You know what I want to see happen? It won't happen. I'd love it. Bailey comes out, costs Sasha Banks the belt. Bailey turns heel. Bailey feuds with Sasha upon her cool. return. Finn Balor against Bray Wyatt. Guys, Bray Wyatt goes over Finn Balor clean on Raw and afterwards dumps blood all over Finn Balor. And now I think we will get the Demon King Finn Balor at SummerSlam. Bray, Finn's going to go over. I just hope the match is good. If you notice, they they not only dropped Samson from Elias, even though they, they said Samson on the broadcast a few times, they have dropped King from Demon King. He's now being presented as the Demon Finn Balor. I like what they did here. Look, the blood was a weird thing, but sometimes Bray's at his best when you have these weird moments when they do it right. You are being led to believe, right, since Finn got pinned cleanly, that he's going to come back and he's going to get the victory and he's going to be shot up the ladder to go to the top and, and, and carry a big belt. I predict something even crazier than that. I predict Wyatt will win the mental battle and Finn Balor and Bray Wyatt will join forces. Why? Because demons cannot be baby faces. They can uh. be nostalgic baby faces, but they can't be baby faces. Imagine these two teaming up 
for a while with the dark spiritual forces being swirled around. Hey, we don't have tag teams, but we got one now. Imagine Wyatt and Balor feuding for the tag team titles with Rollins and Ambrose. You'll you'll one day say I heard that right here, BC. Hey, That's hey, hey Brian, I don't know if you were paying attention to the first half of this year or the end of last year, but they did this once already with Randy Orton and Bray Wyatt, and we know how that one turned out. Please, guys, don't do that again, even though the man whose name is on the marquee came up with it. U.S. Championship match, AJ Styles, Kevin Owens, Shane McMahon, the special guest referee. I'm jacked for this one. I don't know how it's going to end. I don't care how it's going to end. I just know the match will be very entertaining. I think you just said it right. I think the fact that you're entering in uh, Shane McMahon right now tells you that it's going to be a great match because SummerSlam historically does do the guest referee gimmick and they do it very well. I'd like AJ to keep the belt, though. I'd like he's looking so much better and more valuable when you're pushing him as really important with a belt. That's the only thing I want to see happen here. Silver King, this could be a five star match, though. It could. And I think we're finally going to get the Styles-Owens match that we have wanted and failed to receive for the last few pay-per-views. We almost saw it the first time. I think it was at back. I don't even remember. There's too many pay-per-views these days. But the first one, we almost got it. We got the finish with you know him, get, him getting stuck in the table. Styles retains. Owens and McMahon get into a major feud that culminates at Survivor Series in who knows some type of awesome stipulation match. WWE Championship SmackDown, Jinder Mahal defending Bryan against Shinsuke Nakamura. For me, this ends one way and one way only. Nakamura wins, and the crowd in Brooklyn, oh, my voice sucks. Just start talking. Uh, you think it will, but they do. Don't forget what happened last time at SummerSlam last year. There was a lot of swerves. It was a heel night. Heels constantly went over. There was a lot of, okay, this definitely means this is going to culminate this way, and it didn't happen. Nakamura will eventually go over. He will eventually be your WWE champion. He will eventually bring back the status to that title. It will not happen, though, this night. It's going to be Jinder because you have to have them feud for a while and have it matter and make sense, right? So Jinder will get the win. I think it'll be his last title victory, though. I think you can have them feud for a while with Mahal trying to get the belt back and still being in the title conversation. There's something to be said about the India tour they're doing and having Mahal as champion there makes sense. They could also, and we just saw it happen with AJ Styles at Madison Square Garden, they could have Jinder Mahal win the WWE title back off Shinsuke Nakamura in India. So that's what I'm going with. I'm going with the King of Strong Style as the new WWE champion. You get the awesome pop in Brooklyn. You get the crowd singing his song both after the match and on their way out of the arena. And then you get Jinder Mahal beating Nakamura in India to become the WWE champion for the second time. Universal Championship, the main event. We can't wait for it. Fatal four-way. Much of the last month we have spent breaking it down. Brock Lesnar defending against Roman Reigns, Samoa Joe, and Braun Strowman. Stipulation, if Lesnar loses, Lesnar and Paul Heyman leave WWE. We've broken this down a lot. So we don't need to get into how we think that we know the match is going to be good. We think it's going to be excellent. Who is going to win, Bri? What's your prediction? The fact that you can make a prediction for all four and kind of book the future is great. That's why this match will rule. I predict, though, Brock Lesnar will win. Why? I think it's a little bit too obvious that right after the UFC rumors happened that WWE jumped right in and presented that he will pay the ultimate price and seemed to set up a facade that they're going to facilitate Brock to be allowed to train and go back and finish his USADA suspension and come back to the UFC. The fact that UFC members, both John Jones and Dana White, has now sort of soft-pedaled in the media the idea of this Jones-Lesnar super fight happening right away Jones even go as far as saying, I wouldn't be surprised if Brock is just using my name to up his WWE deal. It kind of makes me believe that WWE was smart to use this 
turning point and use this real news, insert it in the storyline, but it's Brock who goes over. And where does he go next, guys? In a feud with Braun Strowman that gets us fired up because, guys, on Monday night when Braun and Brock stood across the ring from each other for the first two seconds, this is the sound that came out of the inside of my body. Because I was fired up. I, I think it's either going to be Brock retaining or Samoa Joe wins. I don't think we'll see Braun or Roman Reigns win. Exactly what Nick said, I, and exactly what you said, BC. As soon as they put that stipulation out, they had to check with Lesnar. You're definitely staying, right, Brock? He says yes. They get the stipulation. They get the juice. He's definitely retaining the title here. If not, Samoa Joe, like Nick said. And BC, just to add to your point, the Lesnar-Strowman match, we will see that. They are not doing it soon. They will do that at the Royal Rumble. That's my prediction. SummerSlam, we can't wait for it. BC and I will be there live. Instant analysis pod to be recorded somewhere in Brooklyn. I don't know where that's going to be, but we will have that for you. So be on the lookout for it Monday morning. SummerSlam instant analysis pod in this corner. Pro Wrestling with the Brian Campbell. And we close the show, not with the feel spot. Different show this week. A lot to get to, but with pay-per-view rewind. BC went first. I went second. Silver King went third. Fans choice for fourth. Bri, tell us about the person who made the recommendation this week. And we've got something cool for him and also something for the listeners to look forward to now on a monthly basis. Look, I'm fired up for the viewer's choice element of this because I want to see our loyal listeners, and they are loyal, get their chance, get their voice to be heard, even even in a higher way than the DMs. This week, it's Omar Al-Rashid. You've probably heard that name before from the DM segment. A nice guy from Melbourne, Australia. Guys, we got some passionate Australian fans. I think they're building their own faction in terms of our you know listener fan base. Talk about the original D-Mady. Now we got Omar Al-Rashid. He picked WWF in your house 10 mind game September 22nd 1996 WWE champion Shawn Michaels versus Mankind in Philadelphia was the main event Omar gave us a little bit of sound here to broke down to break down why he picked this match let's hear from Omar himself hi guys my name is Omar Al-Rashid and before I get through this pay-per-view rewind I just wanted to say a big thank you and a big shout out to the Silver King Adam Silverstein Handsome Nick Costos and the Brian Campbell. Now, In Your House Mind Games 96 is a forgotten classic. It's main evented by HBK vs. Mankind for the WWE title. What's great about this match is it's both great for its bell to bell action and its metatextual context. See, bell to bell, it's filled with crisp in ring work and some brutal and some intricate spots. You can truly see the beginnings of what would be WWE attitude with the incorporation of its use of weapons and table spot. For what is ultimately a filler match for both opponents who were both embroiled in separate feuds, the two were able to generate fantastic heat and do a fantastic job of having the audience become emotionally invested. Now metatextually it establishes quite a few components that would make the then forthcoming attitude era so successful. It introduces true modern hardcore wrestling to the then cartoony WWE, it proves Mankind as a reliable main event player, and it provides a very white meat babyface HBK character with a much needed edge and grit. And most fascinating of all, it is one of, if not the first, true working of the then newly beginning IWC. Some context. HBK had developed a reputation to have a temper when things would go wrong in matches, especially if his opponent botched a spot. So Mankind, being the wrestling genius he is, came up with the idea to make it appear that he missed a spot and have Sean display his temper leading to what would look like a shoot moment in the match. 
Mark was at one point is doing ground and pound style punches while in Mankind's Guard. And this is right around the first time of the very first UFCs. Mankind and HBK were able to put on a brutal match in WWE's most cartoon-like era. They were able to provide an already established star like HBK with new character traits and were able to troll the IWC before it was the IWC. All during one match with no real build that has a schmoz ending. It is for this reason that this match still and probably will always matter. Once again, I just wanted to say thank you guys for the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun doing this rewind and I want to send it back to the boys. Uh, I'm Omar signing off from Melbourne where I live right near the beach. I really enjoyed Omar's analysis there. Like that was good stuff from our buddy Omar. Appreciate Omar. Appreciate all our Australian fans. Appreciate all the fans of In This Corner. Keep using that hashtag In This Corner. Slide into our DMs at Silverstein Adam, at the Costos, at B Campbell CBS, and follow me on Instagram at the Costos because I am a petty, insecure man who needs your no likes stick. and validation to get through the day. No stick picks. Let's move on. <laughs> no stick picks here. No stick picks here. So let's get into the match. Um We'll get our five-star scale coming up here, but we'll get our reactions first. Brian Campbell. I just want to say that uh, interesting pick here. I thought I had seen this match, and then I go back and I watch it. I'd never seen it before. Two weeks in a row, I sort of get to go to school, right, and go back in time and sort of get re-educated, maybe even three weeks in a row. Wow. We've all got some blind spots here. This was a time that I was back in wrestling because of Hulk Hogan and NWO, and I was watching a lot of WCW Nitro. This match, though, Really good, right? Damn physical. I don't know if it was the classic that our guy Omar is trying to paint that Dude. picture, but before we get into why it was good or not, this card opened, by the way, with Vince McMahon, Jim Ross, and Mr. Perfect, great announced crew, standing in front of some crazy marks in the crowd who kept flashing signs. Did you guys read these signs? It said, Tony Gurria rules, which I popped for, Vince McMahon for God, and the third one, Hey Sonny. Fat guys fit better. How <laughs> did the camera pan away from that? Nick, what do you like about this match? Okay, I like many things about this match. Number one, the physicality was through the freaking roof from both guys. Now, you had at points in this match, Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, whose style was brawling, wrestle more of a technical match, and you also had Shawn Michaels, who's who was more of a technical high flyer, brawling outright with Mick Foley. You had Foley taking several insane bumps, including his head smacking back into the concrete, face first into the ring steps. Like, this was not like a regular going into the ring steps where you could see he goes in with his shoulder. He went face first into the ring steps. You had the insane bump, Brian. Into the ring steps, Brian Campbell. Into the damn <laughs> ring steps. Did you hear that Jim Ross call, by the way, I wanted to interrupt you? Mankind's head just bounced off the concrete floor, and he probably enjoyed it. Great call. <laughs> it really was. And then the two of them going off the top rope together through the Spanish announce table, that kind of, I almost cursed there, that kind of you-know-what, was just revolutionary for its time. Now, I remember watching this and being absolutely blown away by it. Just absolutely terrific. And you had Omar said it here, that they worked in the fact that Michaels had been getting pissed in real life and had a reputation for that at blown spots, and they worked in a fake blown spot so it would swerve the, the IWC, which is nascent at that point. Just terrific on so many different levels. For me, the DQ finish with Vader coming out did not ruin it at all for me. I will save my star prediction, but just a, just a phenomenal physical physical match between these two, Shawn Michaels and Mankind. Yeah, the stuff about HBK getting pissy in the middle of the ring and throwing fits. That follows up the SummerSlam 1995 ladder match that we just talked about. This is only a few months later, so very smart pick. I don't know if Omar did it for that reason. A year later. 
a year later, but yeah. but coming off of things just like that, blowing spots in HBK, we talked at length today about the psychology of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Mick Foley's a mastermind of it, and you saw it in this match. I think he was about a year into WWE or a couple months in at yeah, this point. Yeah, a couple point. months. He had just finished his feud with The Undertaker. He got Paul Bearer. You saw him ringside. Mankind kept forcing HBK, who was a face, pure baby face at that time, to kick up the aggression and the hardcore spots one after another because HBK got frustrated that he couldn't beat him. Them telling that story over the course of the entire match was great. Did I love the finish? No, you guys know. If we're going to do these, the DQ finishes, they annoy me. I want to see, you know, really good finishes and really great matches, and we're going to save the star grades like Nick said. I enjoyed watching it. It was nostalgia for me. Two of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Great choice for our first fan submission. What I love about this is you forget, or I forgot how much I love deranged Neanderthal version of Mankind as opposed to like the huggable, lovable Sako version of Mankind. Oh my God, man. He was, and he was so, so wonderfully in character during this match. And you, uh, from from Percy Pringle, who I love to call him that, Paul Bear giving Mankind the pen or something out of his pocket, and Mankind, who just had his legs, you know, suplexed into the stairs, jabbing himself in the leg to try to reactivate his leg was great. Did you catch that guy in the front row with a thick mustache and green Screaming shirt? Screaming at him. Screaming like, at Foley, like yeah. Dave Wanstead, right? Was sitting there with his kid. <laughs> yeah, like Dave Wanstead, yeah. Wanstead coaching the Bears in 96. They were at Detroit for a 315 start. Probably not in Philadelphia that weekend, though. I got to say, shout out negatively to WWE for allowing Jose Lothario early Earlier in the night to come out to Shawn Michaels, you know, sexy music there when he fought Jim Cornette. That was a fail. Other points, (laughs) that table spot was so sick. The belly to back suplex for mankind. What made it even sicker was the guy in the front row wearing the Penny Hardaway Dream Team 3 jersey from the 96 Olympics just going sick with the fist bumps. Love that. But in the end, we got to give it a grade. We got to say, does this match hold up? Great match for 1996 when you talk about the spots and the pace, but I did not love the ending. Too much going on there. I just didn't really, where I loved the DQ finish in the Angle Austin one that we talked about and didn't hold that against it, this finish didn't love. Why is Vader and Sid involved? If Taker came in to mess with Mankind, where does HBK go next? And why is it a DQ that Vader comes in and puts his hand on Michaels, yet we're using chairs in this match, we're going through tables? There were certain things that sort of rubbed me the wrong way to give this a 4.75 star rating, which is what Dave Meltzer gave it. And I can understand that rating considering the times at that point. Guys, to me, this is a 3.75 star match. You know, that's the bottom line. That's that's more ludicrous. That's the worst take that anyone's ever had in the history of the In This Corner pod. That's worse <laughs> than Silver King saying last week that SummerSlam 95 ladder match was better than the WrestleMania 10. Bri- it was. Bri- I'm gonna, you know what? Let's pause for a second here. Bri, I'm going to give you the chance to take that back. I'm giving you the opportunity for a mulligan here, buddy. You going to take that back or are you going to stick with it? Not only am I not going to take it back. Yes, they deserve to die. <laughs> Samuel Jackson, a time to kill, came out of nowhere there. That's uh, that's pretty awesome. Um, three point seven five, huh? I'm gonna take Look, it up. I love the pace. I love the action, dude. The match was insane. What the hell are you talking about? Again, it was a it was insane for ninety six. Now I don't you don't completely penalize them for that. But explain to me why that finish was so good though. That's what I wanted. That finish what I wasn't good. I rewatched it. You remember what I gave Austin Angle? Five stars, even with the bad finish. Five stars for Mankind. Five stars, Shawn Michaels, Mankind, oh, Mind oh, Games. Five so, stars. Wait, so Nick gets to ignore the finish for this match and the angle match, but my match, the SummerSlam 95 ladder match, 
which was awesome. They, we no, discussed no, no, it. No, because that was part of the storyline. They botched the finish of that match. That was a botch in, in the latter match. There was a botch in it, but no, no, what it happened after the, that? It, was, it wasn't Come a on. botch. It was uh, the right. botch. <laughs> Silver King is right, Nick. We may, we gotta, we may have to bring, put you on court, but you've got to put me on trial, too, because you're saying I'm too low. You can't come back with a five-star rating. Five stars. And, well, let's let's clarify something. Are we grading this for 1996, or are we grading it in 2017? How, like, how did you feel when you watched it? What's, what's your rating? As of today. To was, now. We're grading it adjusted to right now. Okay, I mean, for me, it's uh, in between you guys. 4.25, 4.5 match. It's a great freaking match. Like, I've, I can't give it five. Who is closer to being right, me or Campbell? You're closer to being right That's than Campbell right. Is. That's right. The be- Russian judge finally got it right, Campbell. Guys, do you realize we're just talking about, like, I know it's not an Apple, Apple's comparison, but we're talking about, like, Okada Omega but that's exactly. But that's exactly what I'm saying. If I'm grading it in 2017 and I'm giving Naito Omega, that I just said is maybe my favorite match of all time, five, I'm not giving this five. I'm, why, I'm why giving was it four that, and a half. That was a demonstrative. And look, I understand the gravity of what I'm going to say here. Why were those matches demonstrably better than this one? They, uh, the, the well, first of all, the in-ring work was demonstrably the better. The in-ring yeah, work in this is. match was spectacular. It was great. It's it was Shawn freaking Michaels. <laughs> really good. It wasn't spectacular. That's the difference. There were low moments. There were moments. I thought the match went on actually a little bit too long, to be really honest with you. I obviously, I know you can't compare this to, you know, Naito Omega. That's why it can't be a five-star match. And I know that that doesn't mean that every match in the 80s that was five-star isn't five stars, right? Like Steamboat Savage, I love. I think that should have been a five-star. I just think eh, it's a clunky finish, and that has to matter. The DQ and Austin Angle made sense, made you care about what's next, as I just laid out, what is next after this? Because Shawn Michaels gets the hero welcome at the end, and Vince McMahon saying there's no other superstar like him, he's giving high fives to the crowd, yet it looks like uh, Vader's going to go feud with Sid. But it it did make sense, though, because you can't, neither guy could lose, because you had to keep Mankind strong for his program with The Undertaker, and you have to keep Michael strong because he's the champion. So it was actually was a good finish. And by the way, you had the amazing moment where they try and put Michaels in the casket after the yeah. match, and The Undertaker pops out of the casket, and the crowd goes absolutely wild. It was awesome. And Vince McMahon on commentary, um, what, one, two, he got him, no, he didn't. Uh, right. I had forgotten about the one, two, he got him, no, he didn't. It was good to hear that again. I really hate that. That was that was bad. All right, the Undertaker <laughs> point makes me want to raise it to four stars, but you can't. I would no. You're locked in at your no. You locked in twice. Day. You t- twice That's or three wins. I would go though if I even did that. You can't. That's not a. You know, like I, where I don't even really know about the shoot element to it. Like it just it. I didn't really feel that blown spot as much as everybody else. It, it just was a a pretty good match. Not great. Not all time. That's all. I'm saying. I think you're you've seen why over the course of the first month here of Pay-Per-View Rewind, why this is such a cool idea and a cool segment that we do. Because wrestling's very subjective. You listening right now could disagree with Brian, or you could agree with Silver King, or agree with me and disagree with Brian. Everyone's right to a degree, because everyone has a right to their opinion. That's the greatness of professional wrestling, unless you're the Silver King and you say the latter match, the second one was better than the first, or you're Brian giving a 3.5, 3.75-star rating. You know, the only match we all agreed upon... Doomsday Cage. Well, I mean, how could you say that was good? It's just varying levels of bad. (laughs) So, so Bri, the ball now goes back into your court. The man whose name is on the marquee gets his second choice. You gave us a steaming pile of Drek, the Doomsday Cage, which was entertaining, so we'll give you that as your first choice. What's next up, Pay-Per-View Rewind? I kind of picked another interesting one. By the way, next week, Mayweather-McGregor week. I will be doing an episode of this, though, from the road. Let's make this happen. So we will be reviewing this fight. So check this match out on the network until then. 
It's not necessarily from a pay-per-view, and you don't have to rewind that far. But for all we're talking about right now about NJPW and how we want WWE to be better in certain categories so we can get those same feels, right, that we get from NJPW, you don't have to actually go back that far to get a taste of that. And I think this was a match that a lot of people glossed over. They either didn't watch it or they glossed over it way too quickly. September 14th, 2016, it aired on the WWE Network. I'm talking about the semifinals of the WWE Cruiserweight Classic. TJ Perkins versus Kota Ibushi. I haven't seen this match. I I a lot of people went, like I said, skipped by it too fast. Go back and watch this. The semifinals of the Cruiserweight Classic. You'll find it on the network. Oh, wow. All right. So we look forward to that. As Breezy said, Perkins, Ibushi, that will be next up on Pay-Per-View Rewind. And I think, guys, that should do it for this week's edition of In This Corner with Brian Campbell. Brian, I will see you on Friday in New York City as we begin SummerSlam weekend. You can catch us for the SummerSlam instant analysis pod as well coming up on Monday morning. Brian had a great MMA podcast earlier this week with King Mo. Got a boxing podcast with your guy, Rafe Bartholomew, Brian. So everyone be on the lookout for that In This Corner this week. For the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and the man whose name is on the marquee, Brian Campbell, I am Handsome Nick Costos. BC, two words for the people as we close this one out. Yeah! Fire! Oh, those are the wrong two words. I meant to say, we out.